Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honour your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honour their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they'll both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you so much, Graham. Grab a seat. Now, each time we've come to examine Jesus' life, we have to do a bit of work. We have to remind ourselves Jesus was in a story that was already in action. Um, As Donald put it so brilliantly a month ago in his Word Anchored Life talk, he talked about how Jesus' script for living was the Scriptures. He was already part of a bigger story. And this script is one where holiness and purity and set apart and consecration is already a very considerable thread running through the narrative. So today, it's going to be quite an endeavor, but we're going to unpack Jesus's vision. But to do so, we actually need to back up a bit, okay? We need to go back. So have you watched during the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics, have you watched track and field? Have you watched athletics? Everyone watched some of that? You know, every Olympics and every Commonwealth Games, I love watching track and field. And especially, I love watching the jumping events. I love pole vault, long jump, triple jump, but I especially love high jump. I'm actually a huge fan of high jump. My nana, my nana was tall and lanky, and she actually represented Otago. As a, as a representative high jumper when she was young. 
Her and her brother were both tall and lanky and they were nicknamed Stick and Twig, which is where I got a little bit of my lankiness from. And actually during school, in school athletics, high jump was my sport. I loved it. I took after her. So I actually, as an adult, watch it and have a bit of an understanding of what's going on. I actually quite enjoy it. And when you're doing high jump, you have to start at the start of your run-up, several meters out from the, from the bar and the crash pad. You have to picture what you're about to do. You sort of get your body starting to go through the mechanics of it. You sort of rock back and you start to lean forward and find your stride and you get your momentum up into a bit of a run. You arc around, you come up to the bar and then there's this explosion of power as you change from moving forward to up and you throw your body up and over the bar. This is all part of the high jump. You have to start at this big arcing striding run, explode with power up and over. Now I say this kind of framing up what we're going to do for the next about 15 minutes. Okay, for the next 15 minutes today with this talk, we're starting at the start of the run-up and we're going to have to find our stride as we come through the strides and then we're going to explode over the bar and we're going to unpack the teaching that Graham just read for us. Okay, it's going to take a little bit of work for us to do this today, but imagine this sort of activity here because as every good high jumper knows, to get the most out of the jump, we need to get the most out of the run-up. We actually need to think about what has gone on before to be able to make the most of that moment. So, today, let's begin by looking at the big run-up to the text we've just heard read to us. Let's start at the very start. Creation. In the beginning of the story, God is the creator. That is to say... God is the supreme source of all that is good. He is creative power, beauty, and life. And in creation, God makes mankind, this special creation who he created and said, you are my image bearers. You bear my image into the world. They were the bearers of the same goodness and creativity and life and beauty. They were blessed to partner with God. It was this perfect, loving union, this relationship of sharing in God's life together. But not long into the story, we have the disruption of that perfect creation. Enter the fall. Here is where holiness begins. Because God is holy, God is set apart from the sin of the fall, and because God is holy, he is different. So here we have the beginning of a problem. The problem is called the holiness gap. The holiness gap. There's an otherness that has now started in the story, and there's a separation that is now in the story. And this is actually going to become the theme of the rest of the biblical narrative. What's gonna happen with mankind? Are they gonna continue this dehumanizing activity that they've now found themselves in? Will, Will God forever stay separate? Will the gap close? Will we ever get rid of the gap? Could a God possibly return to be with his creation in that perfection yet again? Welcome to the third chapter of the Bible. This is what's going on at the very start of our story of our scriptures. Now the good news is 
Yes, God, God does start to close the gap down. Um, but let's not brush over it. It's, it's not an easy ride. Um, there's plenty of bumps in the story along the way. There's lots of dehumanizing activity that happens in the scriptures. You know, sin is well and truly felt and known. Only, only another chapter into the Bible, you've got two brothers. You know, one of them's killing the other brother. Like that's the dehumanizing work of the sin of the story. But yet God chooses a certain group of people, this family of a person called Abraham, and he makes a covenant with them. He chooses them to start to close the gap down. And God promises that he will bless them and he will be known to them. And in return, they are to be known to the world by the one who has blessed them. They are to be a blessing into the world themselves. They too are to reflect the relationship of goodness into the world as witnesses and representatives. Here in the 12th chapter of Genesis, we have the seedbed of a consecrated people. We have the beginning of God um, separ- uh, sorry, starting to close the holiness gap down with his creation again. So let's just fast forward a little bit with some key highlights of what starts to happen from here. We have Israel. And Israel encounter God's holiness throughout the rest of the story. I'm kind of just, we're ramping up the strides now, okay? We're moving in towards the crash pad, okay? We're moving faster. But we have people like Moses. Moses who finds himself standing one day on holy ground. We have the law, the Ten Commandments that are given to Israel. We have this temple that is established. We have priests who work in that temple. You know, let's just go through those really quickly. The holy ground thing. Well, I mean, this is the encounter of of a transfer point where common ground suddenly became other. It became holy. It became consecrated. It became special Boom, and bursts a bit of holiness into the story. Um, what about with the Ten Commandments? Well, there we have this transfer point where, where we have um, a group of people who were slaves and slave mentality being told, no, 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 this is how you are rehumanized. This is how you become this goodness into the world by being these people that these commandments are calling you towards. You know, for example, for example, Sabbath is one of the commandments, okay? Have a Sabbath, keep it holy. Keep it a holy day. What's going on there? God is saying, here's a day for you to be reprogrammed to remember you are not what you make. Here's a day set apart amongst the seven for you to again remember you belong to God and God is gonna take care of things. Remember this. This is the work of holiness bursting into the common things. Uh, We have... The, the temple, for example, this, this, this space that God um, creates, that the Israelites have to build for God, which is literally his house. It's literally the place he dwells and behind the Holy of Holies. And it's this space which becomes this heaven on earth, sort of little moment on earth. And it's, it's this transfer point again of a common space becoming a holy space. We have the priests. The priests are those who work in the temple and they are the ones who are actually normal men who actually have been set apart to be consecrated, to be sacred men. They do the sacred job. They, they declare what's clean. They declare what's unclean. They work with the sacrifices that Israel would bring to have offered. They did the work of atonement amongst Israel. They helped to correct their sin and make them clean and pure. You know, all of these are encountered and initiatives that are, that are further progress of the story of God closing down the holiness gap. The story rolls along and the results continue to be varied. 
While some aspects of holiness are attained, in other ways, the holiness gap is not closing so well. So what's next? Well, if we keep striding along a bit further, we're getting closer to the crash pad now, we find another group of people are put into the story, and that's the prophets. The prophets arrive, and they start to encounter God's holiness amongst Israel's story, and they start to point out what's clean and unclean amongst the work of the temple and the priests and all that's going on. And we had the scripture today that was um, read by Graham that is being referenced in Matthew 15 there, um, where God says um, through Isaiah, these people say that they are mine, They honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Um, This is kind of like that moment when your favourite artist who put out two banging albums puts out their third one just to pay for the pool. You know what I mean? Like, where's all the heart gone, man? You've lost it. Ezekiel goes on to say this. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words. Their hearts seek only after money. And in Amos, it really ramps up. Here's a couple of bits out of Amos. This is in chapter five. He says, "Um, listen, you people of Israel, listen to this funeral song that I am singing. This is how bad it's got that the prophet is like, this is pretty bad. It's like we're just on a bit of a death march now. And he says this uh, three times throughout the next couple of verses. God says, come back to me and live, says God to the people. Come back to me and live, verse six. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live, verse 14. There's a repetition here. I'm not inviting you to a funeral. I'm inviting you to something of life. I'm inviting it to you uh, to something that's going to be life-giving and good. And then Amos uh, records God saying this, I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteousness. Living. This is this is this um, ramped up moment when the prophets in that story are saying, "We are not getting this right. Something is going wrong." And then God just goes quiet for four hundred years, <sighs> silence. And in those quiet years, we see the introduction of another group of people in the story. We're nearly at the crash pad. I promise you, it's a group of people called the Pharisees. And they are these religious lawyers. They are a subset of the temple system and the rabbis, the teachers from the temple. And they were committed to the purity of the law and its teaching to the people. They were committed to that. They gave their lives to that. This group was deeply committed to this way of holiness that God had called Israel to. But they were essentially the super religious. The people of Israel during this quiet period where God has gone quiet after all the prophets have spoken, it's now the Pharisees who are their examples. If you wanted to know what the consecrated life looked like, you looked to the Pharisees and you listened to them. And that's a really big problem because the Pharisees are doing a terrible job of closing down the holiness gap. Because if anything, they're actually making the holiness gap bigger. Because their holiness has become all about pious behavior that is displayed on the outside. 
and their motives are not of goodness, beauty, or life for the people around them. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we hear Jesus critique that in a really gnarly way, but we're saving that for another day. And it's here, at this point, that the story has kind of reached full stride as we come up to the crash pad in the bar, because here, God himself enters into the story. So we'll get to that in a second. So let's just take a breath and just summarize these markers of the story here. I've basically just tried to take you through the Old Testament with some key markers, okay? Creation that falls. The holy gap, holiness gap begins. How does God start to fix the holiness gap? He injects a bunch of things into common ground and common time and common space with common people. He puts a covenant in place. He sets Israel apart. He puts moments of holy ground. He gives them a law, this 10 commandments of inviting them to a new holy life. He puts the temple in place where he will dwell. He puts priests in place to work in the temple. He puts prophets around to say, we're not quite getting this right. And then there's, of course, the Pharisees who try and jump off the back of that and aren't doing a very good job. And then as we get to the cross, as we get to the end of the sprint and they're leaning over, Jesus arrives. Christ comes. And into the storyline arrives God. Now, with the arrival of this, I do not want you to miss what's going on here in the story. This is not just another cute character getting in amongst the action. This is big. This is the arrival of God in flesh. Hello? <laughs> Come on. This is the leaping over the bar, people. This is big. Because this is no longer God is set apart and bringing mankind across the gap. Easy, easy, gentle, gentle. What happens here is God himself crosses over into the human story. God arrives in flesh, into time, into space, into the common. God arrives, he leaves his own glory and he crosses over. He arrives into dust, he arrives into toil, he arrives into pain, he arrives into fasting, he arrives into humanity and all of its fallen glory. And here is where the holiness gap really starts to close down. And it closes down because Jesus, as God who is flesh, he comes and he embodies nearly everything in that story that I've just run you through. Jesus Christ was perfect covenant. He was in relationship with his heavenly father. He was filled with his Holy, the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He went about the work of his ministry for three years, displaying the will of God in perfect unity with his father. Perfect covenant. Uh, Jesus the Christ was the new holy ground. He moved what was sacred to amongst, uh, he moved what was common to the sacred. When Jesus arrives on the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom, he seems to identify and move towards those who would be considered unclean, unfit for the story, and the kingdom touches down amongst them. What? That shouldn't be working. That should not be happening. God's kingdom should be moving amongst the unclean. We are meant to be clean. It's blowing everyone's mind. Jesus contacts a leper. He touches a bleeding woman. He touched, he literally, a dead boy. You're not meant to touch a dead body. That is not what you're meant to do. This should have made him unclean, but instead his holiness and his purity transfers to them, healing and restoring their bodies. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. We looked at this last month, didn't we, with the word anchored life, how Jesus said, I have come to fulfill this law. I am the walking embodiment of it. He did not come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. You know, example from before, Sabbath. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, well, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you 
rest. Does that mean we don't need a Sabbath anymore? No, we should definitely practice Sabbath, but we need to realize that now we come to Christ for rest, not just by taking a day off. He is the fulfillment of that law. Are you still tracking with me? We're doing okay? I know this is a bit big today, but come, come on, come on, we're going. Jesus is the new temple. Literally, he said, hey, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it. Why? Because he is the new temple. He is this new place of God upon the earth. He is the new dwelling place of the spirit. He is the new system and the new work of atonement. He is going to be the place where the separation of mankind is dealt with once and for all. He is the high priest, it says in Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews, it's a terrific vision of what Jesus as the high priest is. It's just there, chapters and chapters of it. Jesus was this new high priest. He was going to offer a sacrifice of atonement for people to become holy. Holy, that they may enter the holy place once and for all, that the, that the curtain of separation was done with and removed and now we can come before God boldly because of what he has done. Jesus is the new prophet. He's calling out this announcement of God's kingdom, of a future and a hope and a correct way to be in the world. And a Pharisee? Eh, no, not one of those. But it does bring me to our text now. Here we go. We've landed on the crash pad. It does bring me to the text that, that Graham read for us earlier. Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Let's just have a bit of a better look at what's going on in this interaction today to see if we can see what Jesus' vision of the consecrated life is. You know, news of Jesus' teaching and his incredible acts have spread throughout the land. They've gone everywhere. He's the hot news. And he was at the head of this movement where he is doing and he is saying new things. And crowds of people are beginning to flock to him. And in those circumstances, people would look for the little telltale signs of whether he was actually sound or not. <laughs> whether he was really in line with the, the ways that things should be done. And so the officials in Jerusalem are aware of Jesus, and so they send out this group of Pharisees to go to him, to go and check this delegation arrive in Galilee from Jerusalem to interrogate Jesus over this matter of the Jewish tradition. They are checking him out. Are you legit or not? Their attack was directed against Jesus' disciples who were accused of failing to observe a tradition. And the tradition was this. They're not washing their hands. Ugh. Now, it's important to note the ceremonial washing of hands, okay? Just a little side note here that's really important to notice. That's not in the Ten Commandments. This is not a Mosaic commandment as in a Moses commandment. This is just a rabbinic one. This is just tradition. This is just rabbis putting together some, some laws, and they're trying to keep those laws upheld. Okay, so they're coming to Jesus saying, hey, your disciples aren't following one of these traditions. And do you remember what Jesus does? Jesus goes straight to the top shelf. Jesus is like, well, I see your accusation of my guys not doing this. I'll raise you. And he slides a few more poker chips across the table, figuratively, because he doesn't do, okay, we won't go into that. <laughs> and he says to them, he says to them, oh, no, 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 no. You are breaking one of Moses' commandments. You're not honoring fathers and mothers. 
So I see this thing of the traditions you're trying to get me into here, but actually, let me return serve. You're way worse. You're way worse. You are not honoring one of the great commandments, which is to honor your father and mother. This is from Moses himself. This is a big deal. It's such a big deal, it's in the text, that Jews would consider if you didn't do this properly, you'd be put to death. Now, you can almost sense in the text that there's this moment there where the Pharisees are a bit baffled. It's almost like they would be like looking at each other like, um, we haven't got this wrong, have we? <laughs> really? Have we got that wrong? And Jesus then shows these religious leaders the effect that this has on nullifying the commandment. And here's how. He says this. Okay, in the Ten Commandments themselves, the Israelites were meant to honor their parents. This meant, at the very least, looking after them to their old age. That's what you are meant to do. But in the Pharisees' traditions, they were beginning to permit that someone could make a gift to the temple. And if they did an equivalent amount of what they might have spent, and they would have done an equivalent amount of what they might have spent on their parents. So what's going on here is that this would be given to the temple, which would be a great benefit to the temple, but it would come at the expense of fathers and mothers and families. This undermines the entire point of the law. Because what was happening is they were giving something to God and then they weren't giving it to their parents, thus saying, well, I'm giving it to God instead. Jesus condemns this as being hypocritical. It might appear actually spiritual, doesn't it? It seems like the right thing to do. Give to the temple, that would be a good thing to do. But actually, it's done to keep one's positions for themselves. And thus, this failure to help one's parents is actually a deliberate act of violating the fifth commandment. Such actions as these were being described by Isaiah in that text that we read before by Isaiah. Their religion has become a matter of actions and man-made rules. Their hearts are now far from God. Consequently, this worship of giving has been done for all the wrong reasons. And so it's vain and it's futile. Now the word there is this word matin, and that word actually means fruitless and futile. It literally just means like there is no point to it. It's not bearing anything. And it's an aggressive word for Jesus to have used. So Jesus then turns and he uses these leaders as an example. And when you actually think about that, just, just stop and think about this again for another little second here. That's quite uncomfortable because we don't really think of Jesus doing that. Jesus is pretty tolerant and nice and loving, but actually, no, here in this moment, Jesus is literally in a crowd saying, these guys are Muppets. Like, we don't think of Jesus sort of, like Jesus is shaming them. Jesus is saying, don't do what these guys are doing. They've got it wrong. He warns the crowd, don't follow their teachings. He goes on to give his own one. A man is not defiled by what, comes, what goes into his mouth, rather is defiled by the condition evidenced in their hearts. The Pharisees were wrong in thinking that their washings were keeping them spiritually clean. Their hearts were a mess. And so after this, the disciples report back to Jesus and they say, the Pharisees are pre-offended, Jesus, as you would be. Sensing that the words were directed against him, against them, sorry. And again, newsflash, they are. They are. Jesus is literally making a point out of them. 
So Jesus adds that since the Pharisees had not been planted by his heavenly father, that they were heading for this uprooting, that God was going to pull up what they had built. Jesus said, leave them alone. They've chosen their path. Nothing's going to deter them. They were blind guides. They're trying to lead blind people and they're just going to fall into a pit. And then there's this kind of cute moment that always happens in the Gospels. Peter shows up. <laughs> Peter, who's like, again, like, just, just, just to clarify, <laughs> can we just go over this a little bit again, Jesus? Which he does quite often, doesn't he? Just to ask a few more details, he just asks for further clarification about Jesus' teaching. And so Jesus just sort of enlarges that previous statement a little bit larger for them. Defilement of a person does not come from the outside, Peter. It comes from, he uses the analogy of food. Hey, look, what you eat just passes through, doesn't it? Don't think about that too much. But what comes out of the mouth, well, that actually represents the condition of what's inside. What comes out? Is he talking about spit? No, he's not talking about spit. Is he talking about vomit? No, he's not talking about vomit. No, don't, don't get too literal on the analogy here. What he's talking about is what comes out of our hearts is literally the words we speak, the posture in which we speak to others, the, the words we use. This shows the condition of our hearts. And then he blows it up a little bit wider. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, all of these actions, all of this activity, comes from somewhere it comes from our corrupted hearts these matters not whether one eats some food or washes their hands these matters are revealing the true spiritual condition of how we're really doing and that's the end of the moment there isn't really a solution offered but there's one coming and it's in what Jesus is going to go on and do later in his death and in his resurrection We'll get to that soon, but let's just pause here for a moment just to kind of dig into what Jesus has brought us to this morning. Firstly, this. Jesus' vision of consecration starts inward. It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. Jesus is telling us here that this transfer point of holiness, it's not in what we do or what we show. Those, these, the, that, Sorry, though these can actually be uh, misleading metrics when we view them as success in spiritual matters. No, no, he's calling us to a different fulcrum. He's calling us to a different place. And it's this place of our desire. It's this place of our intentions. It's in the heart. Now, the confronting part of Jesus' teaching is this reality that we can all metric our heart's condition by analysis of what we do. He says what we do comes from our hearts. So from this place, this source, we actually become what we do. So to become pure people, consecrated people, means we need to deal with this most inner place of our beings, this location deep within ourselves. We need to have our heart's desires tuned to the right things that we may then become the right people. It's really important to be clear here. You know, Jesus isn't doing away with right living. Jesus isn't clearing that and saying that doesn't matter. He's still important. He still sees that as important. But what he's saying is don't live this life of holiness like the Pharisees are doing where they've got it all around the wrong way. Your actions aren't the point 
Your loves, your longings, your desires are the point. Uh, James K.A. Smith in the book, You Are What You Love, says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. Which means this, Jesus is not offering something here in this conversation with the Pharisees today that's easier. Matters of the heart are not a simpler option. It would actually just be easier to be given a checklist of some stuff to do, right? Tell me what to do, I'll do it. Done. Ticked, metric, I'm off. Talking about the heart, this is ambiguous, this is tricky. How do we do this? It's actually easier just to fix the veneer of our lives as we're living them, the things we do. But we need to be up for this long and patient work of our hearts being changed. Jesus here in this text today is starting to show us that salvation is not just going to be the trading of some moral behaviours. It's going to be a transformation of our entire beings. And this transformation is one of becoming a holy person with the right heart, with the right desires, with the right motives. A person who will, as Genesis 12 was originally set up as the covenant, be a blessing into the world as Jesus has been a blessing already. Now the Pharisees, they tragically had holiness all around the wrong way. They had this performance with no heart. So to be a modern Pharisee today, it would be to do the same. We too can be a modern Pharisee. If we just get into performance first, heart second kinds of thinking. Or if we abandon the heart altogether. If we stop paying attention to this innermost place of our beings and we only care about the veneer of performance and what we portray to people, what people are portraying to us. That's one side of this sort of pendulum swing of being a modern Pharisee. There's another side as well. Let's swing the pendulum over the other side. Last week, I spoke about how one of our cultural slogans in this secular age is to, quote, follow your heart. Remember we talked about that last week? Follow your heart. Yeah, but the problem is, is that's led us to thinking that our hearts can be trusted. The problem there is that our hearts, we can follow that. It's a good guide. But the problem is we can't, can we, as we talked about last week. We cannot trust our hearts. They are, they're too complex. They're made up of too much stuff. Too much has gone into them. Too much has been marketed to them. Too much has been displayed to them. Too much has been proclaimed to them. It's all gone in and it's making it a very confusing place. And so the Pharisees didn't see their hearts as a place of deception. So to be a modern Pharisee today would also be to think too highly of our heart and it not needing attention. To think it already knows best. To think it doesn't need reorientation. And so if we could swing the pendulum between those two places and find a middle ground, what would be a person who is attentive to their heart and honest to God that it needs reorientation? Well, again, from James K.A. Smith, the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. Um, Eugene Peterson, the great pastoral sage, in a long obedience in the same direction, says this, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient 
acquisition of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what, excuse me, earlier generations of Christians called holiness. James K.A. Smith and Eugene Peterson are saying something really important here. The heart is formed by a slow work of practicing. Slow, repetitive work of practicing. Central Vineyard, and to those who are visiting with us today, you're welcome to this conversation. But Central Vineyard, we have to get better at seeing internally and under the surfaces of our lives. Preach. (laughs) Central Vineyard, we need to be up for this long, slow, careful work of heart change. The church does not need another religious experience brought to the city. What the city needs is a bunch of people who are serious about the slow, long work of heart change. Central Vineyard, we need to get more comfortable and more competent in practicing the work of heart change together. So there's a couple of ways that this can be done, and I'm starting to land here. One way it can be done is with daily prayer. Last week, I told you about Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I just want to throw a bit of a who would you become question into the room today. What kind of person do you think you'd become if every day for a few minutes you just prayed those words sincerely and honestly every day? Like, just throw yourself 10 years forward. Who would you become if every day you started the day in a posture of quietness with the Spirit of God and you just said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me? Tuesday. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Wednesday. Create in me, like, 10 years from now, I wonder. I wonder who it would be. That would be to practice daily prayer. And that would be to practice praying the Psalms. Um, Another way that you can practice this this reorientation of the heart is to have a community of accountability. A couple of friends who you have made a covenant and a commitment together to check in on how this journey is going. My friend Sam, who passed his Bay Vineyard down in Napier, he has a group that he calls the Up A Click group. Up A Click, Up A Click, turning it up a click. And they meet once every week for breakfast. He's got a bunch of guys in his church. They meet once a week. I think it's Thursday mornings before everyone goes to work. They meet at a cafe every Thursday morning. It's like, this is where we meet. And they have one question they ask each other and everyone has to answer the question. The question is this, how's your devotional life going, bro? And they all answer. And there's grace and there's love and there's mercy in that group. And there's also challenge and accountability in that group as they all kind of go around and go, oh, she was a bit shifty this week. You know, Dan told us to pray that daily prayer and I don't even remember what the scripture was, you know, like, you know, like. But then there's these stories of like, it worked this week. 
I was driving to work. I had this worship song on. I just had to pull the car over. I was crying in the presence of God so much as I just wept singing that song, First Love, that we've been singing on, you know, first place. I just cried in the car. True story, Tuesday, you know? So again, the, 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 the vehicle of accountability is important because the vehicle of accountability draws us to being accountable to this process of heart change, okay? It's not for guilt it's not for performance, it's for just keeping checked in and making sure we keep walking it. Lastly, how can you practice heart reorientation? Or lastly, pastoral care or counselling or supervision. You know, this is really, really important to, to sort of say, hey, do you have a, a doctor or, a, or do you have a surgeon for, for the, the matters of your soul? Do you, do you have a person in whom you can trust who's done the mahi, who's done the training, who's done the work, who is careful and safe, and they can sit with you and ask those innermost questions. Do you have that? Now, if you don't have that, we do just want to just say, here in this community, we really believe in the work of pastoral care and of counselling and of supervision, spiritual direction. And we have a, a little sort of, um, leash, <laughs> leash has like a little sort of black book of like the, the good ones um, to go to. And so if you ever want someone, if you ever like, I need to talk about this thing in me that will not shift. Well, we, we, have, we have some friends and people that we know and trust that we could help get you to and would love to help you do that. And so this would be uh, the practices of heart reorientation. This is how we would go about it. Just a few practices to throw at you today as we land the plane. So let's land this big thing. Today, I have tried to take you on this run up talking about the holiness gap. And, and then there was this big jump as we leapt over this beautiful truth. God arrived. And something radical happened. God bridged the gap himself. You know, rather than mankind trying to keep bridging the gap itself, God has arrived to partner with his creation to bring about his holiness, offering it in a way, a way of life, a way of the kingdom. So, what was Jesus' vision of the consecrated life? What was it? Well, here's my answer. His vision is one where he became the new holy place in the world to transfer that holiness to his followers. You know, in the Old Testament, the holiness gap had to be overcome by the right rituals, the right protocols. But in the New Testament, with Jesus, Holiness is offered as a grace, as a gift. It's, it's offered as an invitation to all of us. Come, partner with God. Come, partner in God's life. Through Christ crucified, through the cross, God puts to death that gap once and for all. And in the resurrection, when he bursts out of the grave, God brings this new holy creation and he invites us all to join in it with him. Come, Bring your life to be the holy life given into Jesus' resurrection story. And as people who have been swept up into that story, that's what the Christian vision is. We are invited to ask, are we continuing the dehumanizing story of Genesis 2, 3, or have we started to live this new holy life of that New Testament? And that's why the apostles argued a really clear argument. You'll recognize some of this language here. I'm landing up with this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? Remember that from that big story? That the Spirit of God lives in you? 
I mean, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. They go on to say this in 1 Peter. St. Peter says this, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. You are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. St. Peter goes on to say this, but you are not like that for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Quote, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. I want you to pay attention to what's going on here. Man, I'm excited. I really am. But look at what's going on here. St. Peter is saying, you are chosen. You are God's position. You have God's goodness as a result. You have an identity. You have mercy. That doesn't sound like separation language to me. You know, often holiness is associated with this lack Be without blemish, be without sin, be without, be without, be without. It's that gap, gap, gap. But look at what's going on here with Peter. Today in this retelling of the grand story and looking at Jesus and with Peter here in these words, what we're seeing is holiness is not the absence of something, but it's the arrival of something into our lives. It's the fullness of grace. It's given to us. Jesus has offered this fullness to us of a content heart, loving him and in union with him. And it's that fullness of that life lived in Christ, brimming out into the world with creativity, with beauty, with joy. There's the people with this new identity lived into the world at its fullest. The consecrated life is one where our hearts and lives are congruent with this Holy fullness. You with me? It's not the continuation of living in the separated gap. It's actually that there's a presence of something in our lives. Holiness. And today, I just want to land with this. Jesus calls us his temple. He calls you a priest. That's consecration language. You, you are a place and a person that Jesus has called holy, filled with his life, filled with his goodness, creativity and love. You, you are an outpost of another presence amongst our age in this world. You are at the fulcrum And what is the secret to success? What is Jesus most concerned with? Is it your performance in that story? No. It's you. And it's your heart. It's your desires, your longings, and your loves. May you be set apart today for purity amongst this age in all that you are.
that you may go on to live in the fullness of love. I've taken a long time. May that be true. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Sorry for taking a longer time today. That was two sermons in one, wasn't it? (laughs) It's just that, like I said, a month ago, Donald did his, and people came up and said, that was the best teaching this church has heard. I'm like, the bar has moved. I've got to keep keep lifting the bar. (laughs) God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday, Sabbath. Go and live a holy day as holy people.